You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. So the five mass extinctions, starting from 440 million years ago, then 360 million years ago, then 250, then 200, and then 66 million years ago. And here you had this horseshoe crab survive all five of those. What can they teach us? And the horseshoe crab, this hemocyanin, has copper rather than iron to help transport oxygen around their body, which gives it bright blue color. So Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So I threw the gauntlet down last week. I said we need to push ourselves a little bit and we are and it, it it's coupled with wanting i told you, you know, there's a reason i'm going to talk about it here in a minute but i told you i wanted to cover as ancient a species as we could and we found one and, and we definitely <laughs> found one that's that's not a mammal or a bird or reptile or amphibian but more definitely out of our expertise zone but when that happens you and i usually rise to the occasion and ha- definitely have a lot of fun and share a lot of really cool facts. And I just am so excited to be talking about the horseshoe crab today. Which, funny enough, they're definitely not a horse and Mm -hmm. they're not a crab either. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was so funny because last week you and I were talking about how someday when we're older and retired, maybe we'll do insects because we'll Mm -hmm. all the time to be better bug experts. And funny enough, the horseshoe crab is more related to arachnids, such as spiders and scorpions and ticks. So, yeah, yeah, definitely out of my comfort zone today when they started talking about like exoskeletons and mm-hmm. the, oh yeah, I have a, a lot of slides, a lot of slides to help uh, help me learn and talk about the horseshoe crab. But gosh, is it it's a cool creature. Oh, this is gonna go down as is again. I, I go back to mantis shrimp and and when we did corals and some of these species that we're not very familiar with. And I think we just both get giddy and dorky. I mean, I, I, I texted you last night. I was like, Angie, I can't stop. I've got 50 <laughs> slots. <laughs> I thought, I thought you were preparing one of your lectures for classes. And I was like, those poor students. And I realized that it was actually going to be me having to hear all three of the, uh, all 53 of them. I'll be, I'll uh, but, but, but because they're about horseshoe crabs, I think it'll be fun. And I just, I mean, I was texting you back 
it's a living fossil. This thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. way predates the dinosaurs, which was mm-hmm. one of our inspirations for covering it today. Mm-hmm. And you'll talk about that. But, oh, man. And I've seen them in the wild before. Uh, so that was, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. off, the, yeah. off the Gulf Coast of Florida. So Yeah. One of the four living species is, is the Atlantic mm-hmm. horseshoe crab. Yeah, it nearly 480 million years old. This is a living fossil. I'm going to talk about what that actually means uh, when we talk about evolution. Only only 50 slides worth, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But, uh, you know, and, and two of the species are endangered that we know of. The other two are data deficient. So we assume they're endangered. So we're going to talk about this. This is a an animal that has survived every mass extinction on the planet, which we're going to talk about today. Now, the reason I wanted to cover something so ancient, I had a phenomenal, phenomenal interview with Dr. Darren Nash, the chief science advisor for Prehistoric Planet. This has been in the making for a while. I've been manifesting wanting to talk to a paleontologist so out of my comfort zone, but Prehistoric Planet is jaw-dropping. I mean, they reached out to us, said, hey, would you want to talk to them? I heard about Prehistoric Planet. Season two was just released on Apple TV+. Plus. Angie, I watched it. And I know you've started watching it. I, I was oh, blown away. Oh, we couldn't away. stop. I think we're already like six episodes in. Don't judge me with a screen time with my kids this week. <laughs> it's, well, like you told me last night, you were like, because I, I, I FaceTimed you and I said, Angie, I can't stop making slides. I got to stop. But you said, oh, we've been watching it. And and it is literally like a wildlife documentary with dinosaurs. Yes. David Attenborough mm-hmm. is doing the narrating and with, I guess, the computer graphics. I'm not I'm not familiar with all how they do all that. But it is a nature documentary all about these prehistoric creatures. And it is so well done. Obviously, my family loves the Jurassic Park and world mm-hmm. movies. But I'm sorry. This, for me, was way better. Way better because I'm learning, but I'm also entertained and it's visually stunning. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, it's, I, I'm almost speechless, Chris, which is rare. It's it's so good. It's so good. I, I, you know, in the interview, we talk about this and it's not just dinosaurs. It's, and, and again, I was a little uncomfortable because it's out of my way, way out of my area of expertise, but plesiosaurs, Bezel Buff Bufo makes an appearance. The large frog we just talked about. Uh, but it has all your favorites, T-Rex, Velociraptors like you've never seen them before, the massive sauropods like Dronautus. Uh, it was just a, f- a fun, fantastic interview. Anyways, I, we're going to release it next week. We talk a lot about this. One of the things I, I, I told Darren was it like captured my imagination when I was when I was remembering seeing Jurassic Park for the first time in the theaters a long time ago when that first one came out. But remember that. And I said Brontosaurus, and he corrected me. It was Brachiosaurus. Comes out onto the screen, that first dinosaur you see, and you were just blown away. That's how I felt watching Prehistoric Planet. So check it out. It, it, it's phenomenal. Phenomenal series. Now, to, to get going, because we have so many slides to cover, I think before describing the horseshoe crab, Angie, just real quick, the, the four species, the one near you we've already mentioned, the Atlantic horseshoe crab, and then you have three in the Indo-Pacific region. So to just north of me, well, in Southeast Asia and, and near India, all the way up to Japan, you have the mangrove horseshoe crab. 
the Indo-Pacific horseshoe crab, and the Chinese horseshoe crab or Japanese horseshoe crab. So I'll refer them to as the Chinese or Japanese horseshoe crab. Uh, so they all range in that area. General physiology similar, right? And, and looks, but sizes are a bit different. Yeah, Chris. I mean, in general, the horseshoe crab looks like an extinct trilobite, if you're familiar with that prehistoric creature. But it does have somewhat of an appearance of a crab because it has an exoskeleton. And when you look at it, its exoskeleton is divided into three sections, which is pretty common of these types of creatures. And the horseshoe crab gets its name from the largest section of its exoskeleton, which is called the prosoma or cephalothorax, depending on who you ask. And when you look at it from the top view, this section looks like a horse's shoe, which of course is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and so then the second part of the horseshoe crab of their exoskeleton is their abdomen region, which is called the opsisoma. And I apologize to all my invertebrate experts out there if I'm slaughtering these names. But this is the abdomen or the center section of the shell. And from the top view, it has on the outsides like little spines around the edges of the abdomen. And then the last section of the exoskeleton is the telson a.k.a. also known as the tail. And so the tail is attached to the abdomen, and with a layman's eyes, like my own, it looks like a stingray tail. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's long and it's pointed. And contrary to some popular belief, the tail of the horseshoe crab is not a venomous stinger, like if you think of a stingray. What it uses its tail for is to help it steer and to help it right itself if it gets flipped over or something. So it's not, the animal's not dangerous at all. And so some people see that pointy tail and get nervous. And then the color of the exoskeleton, the horseshoe crab, is going to vary a little bit depending on species. But in general, it's, the color is going to be anywhere from like sage green to brown to grays, definitely darker in color. And of course, we're talking about horseshoe crabs. You have to mention their legs because they've got a lot of them. They have six pairs of legs, but only the back five are for walking or moving across the sand. And the front pair of smaller legs are actually used to help get food into their mouths. And we'll talk about that more in nutrition. So call me biased because I do love horses. But I, yeah, I think, I think the, the horseshoe crab is a, a good looking, pleasing to the eye creature. <laughs> it's it, it it is it is but you do look at it and you do go okay that that thing's ancient and just to give you because i want to say this before i even get to evolution it, what's so interesting about them is they have not changed much in 450 million years so mm -hmm. what you're seeing today as angie describes this creature you look at pictures of it or you're 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 fortunate enough to see them in the wild they have not changed much in 450 million years that is what astounds me with them. It's 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 such a fascinating, fascinating story. Now, like I said, different sizes. The females are bigger than the males, about twenty to thirty percent bigger than the males. The mangrove horseshoe crab is the smallest, and so the females can get their their bodies can get about twelve twelve and a half inches long or thirty centimeters. Their tail is really long, can be up to seven inches long or 20 centimeters. And then across width, they're about seven inches wide. Uh, so, you know, not, not the 
the biggest. Now, the Chinese or Japanese or even called tri-spine horseshoe crab, they can get up to 26 inches long. Tails, you know, 35 centimeters or 14 inches, and they're about 12 inches wide. So it's a little bit bigger than that. Now, looking where they live, the Atlantic horseshoe crab is just off Angie's Coast there in Florida. Runs from Maine on the east coast of the United States, the state of Maine near Canada, all the way down around Florida, and then parts of the Gulf of Mexico around the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, all three other species are all bunched up, ranging from India, going all the way around Southeast Asia up to Japan. So the mangrove horseshoe crab, as their name suggests, lives in the mangroves in the Indo-Pacific region. So they're from India to Southeast Asia. The Indo-Pacific horseshoe crab runs all the way from India up to Hong Kong. So all the way along the coast there. And then the Chinese or Japanese horseshoe crab anywhere from Indonesia all the way up to Japan. So there are, that's where the, the, the majority of the you know, three of the four species are. And then you have this one just off your coast, which is amazing. You've seen them, right? Yes. Yeah. Off of Cedar Key, which is the central Florida Gulf Coast area. Yeah. yeah mangrove swamps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, why care about this species? I'm going to go to this is where a bulk of a lot of my slides are because I, I, I want to tell the story of how I'm going to tell you how these horseshoe crabs survived five extinctions at the end. But I want to walk you through each of these extinction events and think about how this animal survived all of this trauma that the planet experienced. And now they're almost going extinct. It's, it's, it's pretty sad. But, you know, why do you care about horseshoe crabs, Angie? All the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, Chris, of course. But also, horseshoe crabs are such a big part of the ecological niche of these coastal communities, mm-hmm. both here in the United States, as you mentioned, and then, of course, in Asia. And being where they fall on the ecological food chain or food web, we'll talk a lot about it during reproduction, but... Their eggs are laid on the shores of beaches, and they lay a lot of eggs. And the horseshoe crab's eggs are a major food source for several shorebirds, uh, especially here in North America, uh, some of which are endangered. And then horseshoe adults are also a good a good source of food for other prey animals, such as sharks and alligators and so they really have a huge ecological niche as far as helping keep a lot of the other species that we're used to seeing on our shores in the above, either in the air or in the water, helping keeping them alive. No, I mean, they're yeah, just another, another critical species that's been around upwards of 480 million years. Uh, and I've seen anywhere from 445, 450 million years ago is about when they emerged. And again, physiology, what you see, not much has changed in the fossil record at all with these animals. So that's crazy. It is. It is. So imagine these horseshoe crabs 450 million years ago. I'm going to take you to the Ordovician time period, 450 million years ago. Okay. So what did Earth look like then? Now, for those that don't know a lot about geology or plate tectonics, what the planet looks like today is definitely not what it looked like millions of years ago, and especially 450 million years ago. The 
the the continents that we see are drifting on these plates. We call them plate tectonics. That's what causes earthquakes. So if you haven't ever taken an earth science class, it's very fascinating how it all works. Uh, just for an example, it's like puzzle pieces. If you put South America and Africa next to each other, it looks like it slots right in there in the elbow of Africa. And that's because yeah, they well, were- Yeah, because it all used yeah. to be one big piece, Pangea. Yes, we're going to get there. We're not to Pangea yet. Oh, okay. Yet. I love Pangea because okay, yes. it yes. sounds like my name. <laughs> yeah, so Pangea Angie. So, right. yeah. So, the, as the plates move, they create mountains like India. The India subcontinent is pushing into Asia, creating the Himalayas, all of that. Okay. So, 450 million years ago, much of the landmass on the Earth was south of the equator. So, it was really interesting. You had Godwanda, Godwanda. We've talked about that, a supercontinent that had South America, Africa, Australia, India, New Zealand, Zealandia, where I'm at, was all one big landmass. Then you had Laurentia, which was North America, Siberia, which is part of Asia, and then Baltica, which is part of Europe, landmasses. But the Northern Hemisphere is mostly ocean. So we know that, you know, and the way we know that is, is, is like there's fossils that are found in South America or similar to ones found in Australia. So they figured at some point they were all joined together. All right. Now, life on Earth. 540 million years ago is really when life exploded in the Cambrian period. So they call it the Cambrian Explosion. And this is when we went from little simple organisms in the oceans to all of a sudden, bam, we have speciation. We're starting to see over the next hundred million years, things like horseshoe crabs emerge. And the oceans were teeming with life. You had plankton-like animals, the anthropods, other ones that are, that are really crazy looking like horseshoe crabs. You had some cephalopods. So those are early mollusk, squid, early starfish early corals, early sea fans. So you're seeing the oceans really teeming with life. On land, nothing on land yet, but you have mostly mosses, fungus, and things like liverworts. Okay, non-vascular plants is what they said. No insects yet. Okay, 450 million years ago. Then, bam, our first mass extinction happened 444 million years ago. And what happened was there was this, this, the tectonic plates, as I was talking about, like the Appalachian Mountains were formed there near Angie on the East Coast of the United States, and it changed climate patterns. So you had a lot of different weathering and, and some cold periods. So it led to this tipping point, like when we talk about like rainforest and all these things, led to a tipping point where it ended up in this mass extinction. And in this one, 86% of all species went extinct. 57, it, was, it was actually one of the most devastating because it's early on, oceans, right? So most of sure. the life was in, in the oceans. Mm-hmm. Couldn't survive the, the, you know, the acidity or the freezing or whatever was going on. 50%, 57% of the genre went extinct. 27% of, of families went extinct. So it was actually one of the more devastating as far as you know, wiping out the, the diversity of life. Okay. All right. So then that started as life survived and changed again. That led to the v- Devonian period. And so this was a period of about 80 million years 
where life started to come back, right? Starts to come back, speciation, all that stuff. At that time, say about 360 million years ago, Godwanda moves or Godwana moves a little bit further south. So you still have parts of like Australia and South America and all that south of the equator. Again, not much north of the equator. It's very interesting where most of our landmass today is north of the equator. Back then, it was south of the equator. So still dominated by very large oceans and seas. So what we're seeing in the oceans, again, the plankton, the mollusks, the horseshoe crabs survived this first mass extinction. They're still there, anthropods. Start to see vertebrates. So this is the age of fish and sharks. And so we see our bony fishes, our cartilaginous fishes. Reef systems are getting established. On land, we start to see greening. So early trees, early plants, early ferns. Mm-hmm. First insects pop up, so spiders, yes. silverfish. I didn't know this. I learned something too. Again, I learned so much doing this. Silverfish was the first confirmed. They're insect. still around. Yeah, three hundred eighty-five million years. I'm, a, you know, the next time I see one, instead of being like, "Ew," I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna give it a little bit more respect. It's ancient. It, we have yeah, them here yeah. in New Zealand. Uh, they mm-hmm. Probably brought them. I don't know if they, they're. I don't think they're native, but yeah. Then your lobbed fin fishes start to emerge on land. So these are the early links to amphibians or our first amphibians. Then bam, second mass extinction happens. Now this one's interesting. So after the second mass extinction, again, 360 million years ago, we lost 75% of species, 35% of the genera, and 19% of the families went extinct. Okay. The reason is, is because we had this rapid growth of trees and plants that Mm -hmm. sequestered carbon like they're supposed to do today. Mm -hmm. And it totally changed uh, and and led to a lot of, yeah, Mm -hmm. led to a lot of global, global cooling. So again, that had a massive effect on all the animals uh, in the oceans and then also on land, right? Okay. Now we moved into the Permian, and this is a interesting time period, 90 million years, where you have a lot going on. And during this time, horseshoe crabs are still around. They survived, right? So now the continents are starting to, 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 to form into, soon Pangaea is going to be there, Angie. So you still have the land masses. Remember, South America, Antarctica, Australia still connected. This is mm-hmm. how marsupials moved eventually when they when they emerge in 100 million years. Oceans, life's getting very complex. Your 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 you know your your mollusks, uh, your anthropods, bony fishes, the buzzsaw shark. I know that was one of my son uh, Wyatt's books, the Helicoprion. It's got this buzzsaw on the front. It's really crazy looking. So now you're seeing mesosaurs, other aquatic reptiles at this time. Starting to freshwater fish, still a little low diversity. Lungfish are, are emerging though. This is a time when the Carboniferous rainforests are established 300 million okay. years ago. Mm-hmm. So, this is where we get coal. A lot of our coal is from a, a time period there where these forests would get covered with water and silt and then pushed down and with pressure and heat would turn into coal which we mine today, which is a lot of carbon. 
The reason we don't like coal burning is because it releases a lot of that carbon into the atmosphere. It's, it's very carbon dense. Uh, so that's just where like a lot of the coal came from 300 million years ago. On land, you're starting to see a lot of speciation, uh, amphibians. The earliest reptiles emerge uh, some 320 million years ago. One of the, the ones is Edifosaurus. If you go to a natural history museum, they're these very large lizard-looking animals with a big fan on the back, sail. Oh, I love uh, those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very, very famous. 300 million years ago. They're not a reptile, but uh, they're one of the early versions of them. Very large uh, vertebrate. Insects are pretty diverse. And then, bam, the third mass extinction hits. And this one was caused by a lot of volcanic activity in Siberia. And the elevated levels of carbon dioxide, sulfur, everything led to ocean acidification, acid rain. A lot of different chemistry changing around the world. This is the one that almost snuffed out life. This is the scary one that just you read about it and you're like, how did anything survive? 96% of all species went extinct. This is 250 million years ago. Mm. Yeah, 250 million years ago, 96% of all species went extinct. 56% of genre, 57% of families. So this was the big one. Not the the horseshoe crab. No, horseshoe crabs still around. Of the 4% mm-hmm. of species survived, horseshoe crabs. Okay? So when I'm telling this story, I'm like, how did this animal survive all this and not change? It found a way to adapt. It, it's amazing. Okay. That leads us to the Triassic period. This is a 50 million years Pangea. Boop, boop. There you go. Oh, hey, now, a little louder for those in the back. What, what? Pangy Angie. <laughs> That's so right. this is one large continent. This is of, the, of all the time periods between mass extinctions, this one was the shortest, only 50 million years. Because less than 5% of ocean animals survived the third mass extinction. It took about 25 million years for life to get back where it was. So how are these horseshoe crabs surviving? I, I just, oh. Just hanging out. Yeah, yeah. With, with their blue blood. Yes, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Uh, so some fishes did survive. The raffin fishes during the Triassic diversify. Coral reef systems recover. Sharks are abundant. Many marine rapti- reptiles. On land, some amphibians survive. They radiate out. Reptiles radiate out. This is where insects, wasps, and mosquitoes make their first appearance. I thought it was interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we see these large reptiles or, and then dinosaurs. So dinosaurs are starting to emerge during the Triassic. So a lot of reptilian, reptilian-like dinosaurs, the archaeosaurs, uh, theropods like T-Rex and more. Okay, 50 million years, then bam, a fourth mass extinction. Now, this was caused a lot by some volcanic activity. I think it was around India, the Central Atlantic and India. India had a lot to do with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, speciation at the time. Uh, So you had a lot of change in chemistry again, massive dumping of carbon dioxide, sulfur in the atmosphere. And not as severe, but is a mass extinction. And we lost 80% of species, 47% of genre, 23% of families went extinct. All right, now that leads us to the Cretaceous. 
And this is where prehistoric planet takes place. 140 million years of where this is where they call the age of dinosaurs, where now you're seeing our today continents kind of drifting apart during the Cretaceous. Uh, Antarctica's formed, you know, still connected to South America and Australia. But uh, again, you start to see shapes of what our continents are looking like. The ocean systems during the Cretaceous period, I, I would say if anybody's seen Avatar 2, it, it, it's like that. You have all these massive different species in there, uh, aquatic reptiles, um, you know, all of these different species are, are, are emerging in the oceans. You've got diverse reef systems. Horseshoe crabs are doing great. Sharks, uh, sea turtles emerge, all of that. On land is where you see the wide variety of reptiles, amphibians, and dinosaurs. The first bird, Archaeopteryx emerges 150 million years ago. Mammals emerge 180 million years ago. Ants and bees emerge 140 million years ago. All the things are going great. This is where prehistoric planet takes place. So watch it. You'll get an idea of what life was like. And it's pretty beautiful too. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, it is. It's 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 jaw dropping the, the the cinematography of it all. And then bam, the fifth mass extinction happened. This is the KPG extinction event, the massive asteroid up to ten nine to ten miles wide or fifteen kilometers wide, came in the planet. Wiped out dinosaurs, a large of these, a lot of these large reptiles. But who survived? The horseshoe crab. Horseshoe crab. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So the five mass extinctions, starting from 440 million years ago, then 360 million years ago, then 250, then 200, and then 66 million years ago. And here you had this horseshoe crab survive all five of those. And now it's faced with extinction again. So this is why we need to care. I think I'll leave that thought in your head while we take a quick break. And then I'm going to come back and tell you how they survived. How did they do it? Okay, I love it. it. All right, we'll be right back. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. All right, welcome back. 
So the question, how did horseshoe crab survive all of these mass extinctions? Because these are the true survivors. I, I know jellyfish, we'll have to revisit them at some point, are one of the most ancient species. I know one that we've covered, like 700 million years. They, they, they're one of the simplest organisms we've covered. But, oh, I, the, the horseshoe crabs, I, I, I don't know. So when you look at it and you do the research and dig down, how did they survive? Well, if I had to take one guess, I would say their exoskeleton probably helped them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they're not, you know, warm-blooded an- mammals or, I mean, they, they have this, let's start with the blood because that's something we're going to cover here in a minute. And it's one of the reasons that it's leading to their extinction. They have blue blood. So there's a factoid that's special and it coagulates when it encounters bacteria. Well, first and you got so, to know why it's blue. Well, we're going to get there. I'm just saying okay. this is one of the reasons they survived is the blue blood. So <laughs> any any wounds they receive, they can... They can I know, they the can, physiologist, physiologist in me is like, well, why is it blue? Okay, okay. <laughs> but we'll I guess there. other people's brains don't think like that. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they have this special blood. They can feed on almost any organic matter. So it, it didn't really matter. They, they, they're not specialists. They're generalists. And what they definitely eat. generalists. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can they can pull nutrients from that. Uh, they're they're very tolerant in fluctuations in salinity of the oceans and seas. So yes, love- I read a lot about that, which is mm-hmm. why they do well currently. Like they can go in the brackish waters mm-hmm. as well as the the deeper waters for their life cycle, the way their life cycle works. So yeah. Yep. Flexible yep. So, of that is good. Yeah. And they can go find places of safety, right? So when they're dealing with that. And they also can live, like, this reminds me of the amazing, and I'm sorry, it didn't do well in March Mammal Madness, but your naked mole rats, uh, they, they can survive periods of, of really low oxygen in the oceans. Mm-hmm. That, that would kill most other organisms. Horseshoe crabs would be fine. You know, they're able to survive. Now, we're going to jump into some of that physiology here in a minute. Okay. So let me just tie up some loose ends with evolution. Like I said, horseshoe crabs have not changed much at all. Um, they are an animal. They're in the kingdom. We, we, we go through scientific classification, kingdom animalia. As of last year in 2022, it's 2023 now as we record, but in 2022, 2.16 million animal species have been described by scientists. Wow, over our, a, we've got our work cut out. We should yeah. probably do like two podcasts a week, maybe yeah. three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, two million. Somebody wants to hire us. Yeah. Yes. Yep. yep, yep, yep we're free agents. Um, of two million uh, have been described so far of the estimated 7.77 million animal species in the world. So, like I said in the beginning, in our beginning, it's like over 7 million animal species. Yeah, there is. Uh, not mammals or birds, it's all of them. A million are insects. I didn't know this. Over 85,000 are mollusks. Yeah, that's wow. crazy. Yeah, well, snails yeah. and all the things in the ocean. Well, yeah. And when I was prepping for this podcast, I learned the phylum Arthropoda yes. is the largest phylum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 80% mm-hmm. of all known animals. Yes. Insects, snails, mollusks, crustaceans, nematodes, and so, so many So you and more. I are going to have to like learn to <laughs> be comfortable <laughs> being uncomfortable getting out of our ex- area of expertise. That's for sure. I we're, do, out, yeah. we're outnumbered, man. I do see a monarch butterfly and, and honeybees in our future I, in the yeah. next year. So I yeah. think we'll, we'll, we'll throw caution to the wind. 
Uh, only 65,000 species in Animalia are vertebrates, but uh, yeah. So yeah, Phylum Anthropoda. The order is Xyphosura. There's only horseshoe crabs. Only the four species reminds me of Tuatara, who I love, and I'm glad my Tuatara that I sent with Jesse to the States made it in your household. Yeah, Zachary is in love with it. He, oh, I love he the Tuatara. Is, and, and, and of course, now he's like, we have to go see one in the wild New Zealand. And I'm like, yes. It's okay. Yes, we are. I next agree. year. Yeah, <laughs> next year, you're coming. You're coming. But yeah, so they have their own order. I mean, obviously, there was tons of different families and species that that didn't survive through evolutionary history, but of the four remaining today, they were all part of that. Uh, the family is Eumulimulidae. And then the genus, there's three genus in the four species. So the mangrove horseshoe crab is Carcinocorpius rotodacata. The Atlantic horseshoe crab is Limulus polyphemus. And I apologize to my, uh, my anthropod uh, favorites out there, or scientists. And then the Tachypleus is the genus for the Indo-Pacific and the Chinese or Japanese horseshoe crab. So uh, those are the three three genre. Uh, again, the oldest horseshoe crab known that that we we can say, yep, that's a horseshoe crab. Is about four hundred forty five million years ago. But some some scientists think they date lack, date back longer than that. But again, virtually unchanged. So when you call it a living fossil, which I learned, I didn't really look this up before, was coined by Charles Darwin in eighteen fifty nine. Okay, cool. Yeah, so a living fossil, really what he was saying is they look almost identical to their fossilized ancestors. Mm -hmm. So living Mm -hmm. fossil, right? Horseshoe crabs literally are living fossils. That's so cool. Well, even when you look at the the, um, Tachypleus, Mm -hmm. yeah, the Tachypleus gigas or the Indo-Pacific, that hasn't changed at all in about 52.5 million years. Yeah. That's when they think they diverged from the other Asian species that Tachypleus uh, tried to. Uh, that's why you get paid the big bucks. Tried <laughs> yeah, to. No, I don't get paid anything, but yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, tried in Tatis. The, yeah, there you the go. Chinese the, or Japanese. The tri-spine. Horseshoe. Yeah, the mm-hmm. tri-spine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah, those fif- two, I mean, 52.5 million years ago. I mean, that's. It, it, and and so science it's a long it, long time it is and you when you read the history of it it baffles scientists because the molecular data shows that the genetic diver- variation they have is the same as all the other species we see around the planet so we can't date any changes to the molecular data we they basically have not changed barely living Maybe- fossil Yep, there you go. So we have no idea how long these current species have been around. They're the originals, for all we but, know. Yeah, so why care? That is, I mean... For another we're, reason. We'll blow your mind with a lot of cool physiology yeah. facts, but that alone is just, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, okay, so they can live up to 20 years that, that mm-hmm. when they're born. Mm-hmm. The physiology is phenomenal it's fanatic i i don't know where where to start uh, the blood the eyes what they eat i think you have to start with the blood because okay okay we, yeah we talked about it a little bit and i think it's yeah. really unique from a lot of this other species we've talked about for the past mm-hmm. five four five years 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they're as you mentioned, their blood is blue. Why? 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 You said why? You want to know the yeah. physiologist, why is it blue? Well, let's quickly start why our human blood is red. Okay. So our blood is red because of hemoglobin, which is the protein in the red blood cells that helps transport oxygen around the body. And it contains iron. Whereas horseshoe crabs have a different oxygen-carrying protein. And it's called hemocyanin. If I'm saying that right. Yeah, I think so. Hemocyanin. And in the horseshoe crab, this hemocyanin has copper rather than iron to help transport oxygen around their body, which gives it bright blue color. So blue-blooded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool stuff. It is. It is. And then, Angie, one of the reasons they one of the reasons they think they can they can survive through all of this trauma of the earth uh, is this blue blood, but also that they don't have white blood cells like we do to fight off infection. Instead, they have amoebocytes. Yes. And this is another word and fact Mm -hmm. I had to learn a lot about and was just just completely blew my mind. But Mm -hmm. so the blood of the horseshoe crab contains amoebocytes. Now, remember that site means cell. So this is a type of cell. It's not like a type of, when I first read, I thought maybe it was like a type Mm. of amoeba, right? Like amoeba is that little one cell creature, whatever. Um, No, it's just named amoeba site because it's a type of cell that's very mobile, like an amoeba, Mm. in the body or in the blood of the horseshoe crab. And But what's fascinating about this specialized cell, this amoeba site, it does help their immune system and it acts kind of like a white blood cells or how some of our white blood cells act in the body as far as protecting the horseshoe crab from different pathogens, bacteria, and viruses. And so these specialized amoebocytes in the, bud and bo- in the blood and bodily fluid of the horseshoe crabs help defend itself against any different types of basically, yeah, pathogens. Mm-hmm. So the amoebocytes can also help basically digest and distribute food and dispose of waste, fight infections, and even change into other cell types. So they're a pretty unique and distinct type of cell that are found in these horseshoe crabs. And mm-hmm. they play a really, really important role in keeping them safe from all of these, all of these issues that arise when you're swimming around the ocean and there's these mass extinctions going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well what's interesting is is, is too is john hopkins uh, discovered uh, this with the amoeba sites that when you add them to a vaccine or a drug if because it's like a wall of goo as they describe it as they attack these pathogens so they use these amoeba sites in vaccine trials or drug trials and if they do coagulate or, or do their gooey thing that means there's some bacterial contamination in there. Yeah, Chris. I mean, it's, it's such a cra- another crazy fact about horseshoe crabs that their blood with these unique amoebocytes cells are, are harvested uh, mm-hmm. to basically help the biomedical industry help keep us all safe. And so mm-hmm. when you're thinking about another reason to care, I think Chris and I provide a lot of reasons to care about yeah, horseshoe yeah. crabs, but Maybe you're just not that into horseshoe crabs. You don't really care about evolution and their living fossils or that they're part of the ecosystem. But 
man, when they're not about the money, they're about the money or hell, human health. I mean, there's a good chance that someone you know potentially could not would not be alive today if it was not for these horseshoe crabs. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, me. I know I wouldn't have been. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. how important of a role they play in their blood plays in the biomedical industry. And Chris, that's why it's just like so fascinating to me that the horseshoe crabs were able to like save themselves through all these mass extinctions. And for several years now, their own unique, very, very unique physiology is helping save people's lives. And so it's fast. So I had to take a little bit deeper dive into it, just the the nerd in me, the physiology nerd. Mm-hmm. And, and but these cells from the blood of horseshoe crabs are are used to make something called limulus amoebocyte lysate, also known as LAL. And as Chris hinted to earlier on, this LAL substance is used for the detection of bacterial endotoxins in all medical a- applications. Mm-hmm. So there's a really high demand for the horseshoe crab blood, uh, which is harvested from the animals uh, by basically bleeding the animal. And then here in the United States, we will release them back into the sea. The good news is that in the United States, when this uh, process happens, that most animals survive as they don't take that much blood to hurt the animal. However, of course, certain individuals are either stressed by it or maybe sickly to begin with. And so they don't survive this quote unquote bleeding process. So one of the most recent estimates is that on an annual basis, there's about a half a million or 500,000 horseshoe crabs that are harvested for this purpose of collecting their blood to get the amoebocytes. And it's estimated that uh, anywhere from 3 to 30% uh, of the horseshoe crabs that come up to be bled can can die. So when you're looking at conservation, that's not a great number, right? Of course, the, the, the companies that are doing this are trying to do it as safe as possible, but Still, there's definitely some that are are lost in and you know during this process, and then it's also suspected that some of them maybe aren't thrown back in that they're actually just then sold to use as fishing bait. So that might increase the uh, the mortality rates even more for the horseshoe crab. Mm-hmm. And for species of the Asian horseshoe crab, the numbers are a little bit more bleak. For example, in 2018. It was estimated that about 100,000 tri-spine horseshoe crabs came up and they had about a 100% mortality rate because Mm -hmm. they were either then used as food or bait once they were brought up and bled out. So it's, you know, it's definitely uh, something to be concerned about. And of course, it's really important for human health uh, to make sure that medical devices and vaccines are bacteria and pathogen free before they're used in humans. And that's what the horseshoe crab blood is able to do. There's amoebocytes or the LAL is used for, uh, but it's also an issue for their conservation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is some hope and good news is that uh, researchers have come up with a synthetic LAL. And so there is some, some good and hopeful news that in general since like the 1990s, that harvesting horseshoe crabs for their blood uh, with pharmaceutical companies is in decline from where it was at the heyday. And in 2003, there has been um, a synthetic 
chemical that's made that's been made and patented that researchers are hopeful that it can maybe replace the LAL. And so the synthetic compound that was made uh, out of the National University of Singapore called RFC is working well and some pharmaceutical companies are using it. However, in the United States in 2019, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has not uh, approved it yet. And of course, PETA and some other groups Mm -hmm. have uh, pushed back on that and saying that they think we should use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's, uh, it's for a lot of ethical reasons. So right now for companies in the United States, without the approval from the FDA, it's still kind of the synthetic RFC is basically you know, it's still in limbo. So, but hopefully, hopefully they'll take steps in the next, in years to come to get that on the market and a hundred percent use that and, and, and show and prove that it, it's just as safe and effective and good as the horseshoe crab blood is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, that, that was the good news I was reading because it it is such a, a massive part of why they're declining. Uh, I mean, I think they can weather climate change. We, we've seen that with mass extinction. Seems and, to be pretty good with it, yeah. Yeah, and some of the other stuff, but this being harvested by humans uh, and being used for food, it's just, yeah, that's been a big thing for them. So. Yeah, that, that's a major driver in their conservation story. Now, besides the blue blood, some of this other crazy physiology, what, nine? But you said, you corrected me because I was like, oh my God, Angie, nine eyes. And you're like, that's what we talked yesterday because I was like, I can't believe this creature. Ten, up to 10 eyes? Uh, different photoreceptors? Yeah. Right. So this is once again where we talk about, like, we did like, well, how many eyes did the mantis shrimp have? The mantis shrimp only had two eyes, but they could see amazing different uh, world of color than we could. It was like 16, 17 bands where we're like three or four. Right. I, a UV polarized light, something. I, That's I'd right. have to go back mm-hmm. and review everything mm-hmm. on that. It, it, yeah. I don't have that in front of me, but yeah. So yeah, as I was reading about the horseshoe crab and all of their eyes, I'm thinking like, okay, they have more than two, like other fish mm-hmm. and other species we've covered in the ocean. They have more than eight, like an arachnid. If you think of a, a typical spider, they're they're known for their eight eyes. Yeah, these horseshoe crabs have a total of 10 eyes, which they use for several different purposes, from finding their mates to sensing light. And so to start with for the horseshoe crab, they ha- their obvious eyes are two lateral compound eyes. And these are their main eyes that are used for finding mates during the spawning season. And it's really fascinating and these two lateral compound eyes, the cones and the rods have similar structures to those that are found in our human eyes, but they're a hundred times bigger and larger in size, which is pretty cool. And so because of this, horseshoe crabs can see really, really good at nighttime as well as during the day. So I always like to think of their superpowers and Mm -hmm, horseshoe mm -hmm. crabs are seeming to have a lot of superpowers besides yes. just lasting since the, the, the dawn of time. But yeah, one of them is that they can see really well in um, in, dar- in the dark. Mm-hmm. So then in addition to those two main lateral compound eyes, the horseshoe crab has an additional five eyes on the top side of that prosoma. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the prosoma is that rounded horseshoe shaped exoskeleton. And they lie behind the main lateral eyes, the compound eyes. And 
These eyes are known to detect ultraviolet light from the sun and then from the moon, which is really important for spawning, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. These UV sensing eyes also help the crab follow the lunar cycle, which once again is important for spawning. And then the horseshoe crab has two ventral eyes that are located close to their mouth, but researchers don't really know what the function is. So that's fun. So maybe one of you budding young scientists out there can help figure out that mystery as that is also as old as the dawn of time, like 450 million year old mystery. <laughs> okay, Chris, so if we're adding it up, it was two plus five is seven plus mm-hmm. two more that we don't know what they're doing nine. is nine. Okay. And so the last eye, which maybe that's why you read nine and I read 10, but mm-hmm. the last eye of the horseshoe crab is located on its tail. And this is an area of multiple layers of photoreceptors that are located on the tail. And researchers think that these photoreceptors uh, help the brain synchronize the lightness and darkness cycle as well. Mm-hmm. So, it's <laughs> an eye, or yeah, it's, I mean, it's light sensitive. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's basically mm-hmm. what eyes are doing. Oh, it's so yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and they're just. Some places yeah. I read, they say they have poor eyesight, but once again, they have this good, they can you know, do well in the dark. And then I also read that they're that these large rods and cones make them a million times more sensitive to light at nighttime mm-hmm. compared to us humans. So it seems like just during the day, either poor to average eyesight, and then at night, I guess really good, uh, really good eyesight. Vision, yeah, vision. Yeah. Well, I know we we, we did cover you covered a lot in the carpes, uh, the tails. One thing I read about the tails is they can flip themselves over with it if they if they get stuck on their backs. But any other physiology facts that that you found? Well, yeah, Chris, I thought this was really cool that while these horseshoe crabs were swimming around in the oceans for 450 million years, they're not alone. They like to travel with friends, which is really fascinating. Okay. Mm -hmm. When horseshoe crabs finally reach adult sexual maturity, which is not until they're about 10 years old, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in reproduction and their molting and life cycle. But these adult horseshoe crabs begin to get colonized by epibionts. Now, for me, teach, even teaching ecology and tons of zoology classes, I had to do a little bit of research on what an epibiont is, if I'm even saying that right. Mm-hmm. And what is it? What it is is an organism that lives on the surface of another organism. And I'm like, well, you know, we of course we've heard of that in ecology, so. What I can understand is that basically an epibiont is an organism living on another organism. And so these little creatures that live on and colonize, like little barnacles or whatever, the horseshoe crabs when they're adults, are they don't hurt them and they don't really help them. And so... What I my understanding of it is the interaction between these two organisms is what we call neutralistic or commensalistic mm. as opposed to being parrot parasitic where one organism right. like yeah sex the living life out of the other one or mutualistic where both organisms get this awesome benefit to mm-hmm. their coexistence so an epibiont is just one that hangs out gets a place to live 
And they're probably they're gaining something from it, uh, the little barnacle or whatever that's living on the on the horseshoe crab. But the horseshoe crab's not is not being harmed, but he's not getting anything out of it. He's just got a little okay. friend. So <laughs> we think of like hey, we think of like barnacles on the blowholes of gray whales or remoras on sharks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but they uh, and so you can always tell their age too when that starts to happen, and. Also, as you mentioned, that males are smaller in size than females, but they actually uh, tend to acquire a lot more of these epibionts compared to females. That's interesting. I wonder why that yeah. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The scientist in me is like, why? I know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we we mentioned is, is they are generalists uh, when, when feeding the lower levels of the ocean. I mean, we know they eat crabs, mollusks, fish, small fish, worms. They larvae. I mean, some studies have shown mangrove, mangrove, horseshoe crabs actually prefer insect larvae. So I found that interesting. And then they don't have jaws. So you talked about these these front pincers, right? Mm-hmm. That moves the food into the. I think mouth. the technical term is called chelarissa. Okay. I know I'm okay. saying that wrong, so I apologize okay. to my invertebrate biologist friends out there listening. Okay, so they move it into their, yeah, chelicerae or chelarissa into their mouths. And then they have, I thought, I thought this was fascinating too, because it's such, again, nothing has changed in 450 million years. So it goes into a proventriculus, which has a crop and a gizzard where it can grind the food into pulp for the digestive, digestive system. So I thought that was kind of fascinating, you know, especially mm-hmm. when they're they're eating such a wide variety of organic matter. Oh yeah, too. And if you look closer at the horseshoe crab and their legs, uh, at the base of each one of their legs, they have these like little inward pointing tiny spines called nathobases, and those also to help move the food towards the mouth. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're just they're just made to eat and move around and. Yeah, be happy and live. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I want to see one in the wild. Uh, you're, you're blessed to have seen one. Now, now I really want to see well, this. And, well, because I was horseshoe crab naive, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was a male or a female. I want to know if it had any friends uh, growing on it. I, was it during breeding season? I mean, that's why I love this podcast because so much wildlife that I've already seen, I just, I I learned so much about it after the fact. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing, too, that's so fascinating about the horseshoe crab is this exoskeleton, right? Chris and I, of course, deal with mammals or mammal physiologists. But I, you know, I just had to dork out a little bit with the exoskeleton because it's so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. This exoskeleton is basically made of this protein called chitin uh, with ridges and stuff that muscles attach to that. Yeah act once again as like an epidermis, but way harder. So kind of like a skeleton. And that's why it's called the exoskeleton. And it really, really protects them a lot, right? And it protects their insides and they can still move around a lot and have a lot of mobility. But one of the limits of an exoskeleton is that in order to grow or to get bigger, the exoskeleton has to be molted or shed, which is a super fascinating process because we've talked about mammals that maybe molt uh, their fur, like some of the seals. And of course, we've talked about birds molting their feathers during different life cycles and times of season. 
But this molting in horseshoe crabs was just super fascinating to me. And once again, I'm definitely a little bit out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just really so cool if you i mean they're losing their like their whole skin it's not just like a little bit of fur or some of their feathers mm. it's basically replacing this whole like lower layer of their it's called their endocuticle they have an epi mm-hmm. on top epicuticle exocuticle in the middle and then an endocuticle on the bottom and that whole bottom is just pushing up and out and being replaced and the animal literally like backs out of its old exoskeleton. And I used to have Mm -hmm. a tarantula. uh, And so it was always so fascinating when the molt happened and you basically would look, you would look in the the tank and you would see like two tarantulas and you'd be like, "Uh uh-oh. And you would realize that, no, no, that's, they they molted and that's like, Mm -hmm. they just crawled out of their, you know, their, uh, it's not their skin, but it's actually their exoskeleton. So it's just super, super fascinating, but they need to do this to grow. And of course, the horseshoe crab is no different. And so for horseshoe crab, they don't reach their full adult maturity until they're about 10 years old, right? And so in the meantime, as they're growing, they have to do this molting cycle, which takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. And they have to hunker down and make sure mm-hmm. that they're they're safe during this process. And so uh, depending on the species of horseshoe crab, on average, Horseshoe crab will molt 16 times before reaching their quote unquote adult maturity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So once they're 10 years or older, it's rare for them to do another molting process. But basically, like as they're growing, they're constantly shedding who they were before and and growing into who they want to be. So I read it really well. They're like, Horseshoe crabs are all about personal growth, which I thought was super cute. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's just, just fascinating. But uh, I just also couldn't believe that when we think about their reproduction, uh, that they, they're not even adults until they're 10 years old. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem, I mean, I know they're not no. crabs, right? But that's not like, a, that's not normal. That's not normal. Doesn't they, that seem like really old? Really old for an anthropod that's yeah, only right? lives to be 20. So yeah, you would think they'd be reproductively ready early, but they're not. Well, and then when you think of their conservation, if they're getting pulled up onto a boat to get their blood harvested, even if it's in the U.S. where they're throwing them back and they're only three or four years old and they don't make mm-hmm. it because the process was too stressful or whatever, uh, I mean, they didn't even get to reproduce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that to me is a big problem, right? They need to pass down their genes. And so, uh, yeah, just just super fascinating and and, and really, really unique to have that long generation interval, if you will. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Now, going to behavior, what do we know? I mean, we've covered a lot of it, some of the feeding stuff and their their friends that ride on them and things like yeah. that. Uh, else, I mean, else? I feel like yeah. after this podcast, and we all know that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a total animal dork, but I feel like I could watch a horseshoe crab just move their little legs and get their little food uh, probably for days <laughs> because that's pretty much all they do, right? Or molt, just sit there and do nothing and then back out of their exoskeleton. But a fun fact for their behavior is they can swim upside down near their abdomen. That's that middle piece of their exoskeleton. They have flap-like structures that are called book gills. And the gills, of course, are what allow the horse. And the gills, of course, are what allow the horseshoe crab to be able to breathe 
underwater, but uh, they have been reported to use these gills to help them basically swim upside down. And typically the youngsters, so 10 and under, that seem to engage in this playful or silly behavior uh, that doesn't really serve any biological purpose, but it's fun to it's fun to watch if, uh, if if you get to see them doing this. Yeah, no, it would be. It would be. Now, like we just said, not until 10, but when they do reproduce, I, I did watch some videos of small horseshoe crabs and spawning and stuff. So, so what do we know there? Well, Chris, I just love this so much because spawning in the horseshoe crab is an absolute spectacle it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's a miracle, but it is a sight to be seen. And it reminds me a little bit of when we talk about corals and how they spawn only one time a year on a full moon. I think it was in August, if I remember correctly, depending on the, of course, the species of corals, I was uh, the ones that live here around Florida. But horseshoe crabs are similar in that they're spawning typically is synchronized with a full moon or new moon and during a high tide. And so how it all is coordinated together so that male and female horseshoe crabs alike know where to go and what coastal beaches to hang out in is still being researched and we still don't know all the places that they spawn. And as Mm -hmm. researchers are learning more about where the different, especially the endangered ones, are spawning. They're trying to protect the areas and learn more about them. But it's still a hu- it's still a, a lot of mystery. But what we do know in general for just horseshoe crab reproduction is the male will start to come from the deeper waters to the shore first. He gets there, and then shortly thereafter, once again coordinated with this mm-hmm. lunar cycle. Uh, the females will arrive at the shore of the beach and she'll start to release a pheromone. For example, for the Atlantic horseshoe crab that is in my neighborhood in Florida, but then all the way up, all the way up the coast to New England, where my husband's from, and in the Yucatan Peninsula, this can happen anytime in the spring from like May to early June. So it's, it's a pretty uh, short period of time that this happens, but it can happen anywhere in this vast geographic area that I'm talking about where the, the, the males come up to the shore and beaches and then the females follow after them and they release a pheromone. And it's all, once again, it's typically at nighttime during a high tide and under a new or full moon. And once the male senses this pheromone that the female's in the area, he'll grab onto her with his small little front claws. So they are for more than just stuffing his face full of food. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's to grab onto the female. And then the female actually will tow the male further up onto the beach. So he gets a little bit of a free ride. Mm -hmm. And the female will then up on the beach, she'll begin to make a nest. So dig a little bit, you know, dig in the sand a little bit. And the female horseshoe crab will lay around 4,000 eggs on average, depending on the species. And then the male horseshoe crab will proceed to release sperm on top of the eggs that the female have laid in what's known as external fertilization. But it should also be noted that the female will dig this nest and lay on average about 4,000 eggs, but she'll dig multiple of those. And so researchers guess 
that in one breeding season, a female may lay up to 90,000 eggs in these small little clutches. Mm-hmm. And then the eggs of the horseshoe crabs are now known as larval as they start to grow. And depending on the species, the, it may be two to four weeks that they're on the beach and they're, they're growing and changing. And then they will hatch. And the freshly hatched larvae are known as trilobite larvae. And they will make their way into the ocean and sometimes get picked off by uh, seabirds and other predators uh, on the beach. And the cool thing is they, they do, they look like just like little like baby horseshoe crabs. Very, very similar to the adult, just much smaller in size. But as the, the baby horseshoe crab grows, uh, if they're so lucky to, to live that long, uh, from the small size, they'll have to do anywhere from 12 to 16 molts over the next 10 years before they can reach sexual maturity and then be able to pass on their genes. So just a really fascinating, fascinating process. And I want to learn more about it. I'm, I'm not done. I'm not done with the horseshoe crab. Well, yeah, I think one area that, that and this came up in prehistoric planet, not not in the interview with Dr. Nash, but I think in their podcast, listening to it, dinosaurs using stars for navigation, you know, and they're, they talk a lot about these, they show a lot of these complex behaviors that they can infer from the fossil record. And then some of it's like a speculative, like, well, we know certain species do that. So they probably do. So I'm thinking horseshoe crab, this thing's 450 million years old. It's got 10 eyes or nine eyes. Navigating to the beaches goes back to sea in the turtles dark. in mm-hmm. the dark, goes back to sea turtles. How do they know where to go? How do they know to go to the same beach they were born at? You know, probably navigating by stars, we think. I mean, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a big what if mystery, but. It is. Yeah, yeah. It is. And we are learning a lot more about where they spawn and and, and how to protect those areas. And and so, for instance, in, uh, in Florida, because uh, we are concerned about the Atlantic horseshoe crab and their, their low numbers, that if you do see one on the beach, you're supposed to report it to Fish and Wildlife mm. because they, they want to know more about where they're hauling up and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. doing doing their breeding so that we can help protect those areas. And yeah. there's a really big one in Delaware that's very, very well known for horseshoe crabs as well. So there's ones that are, there's areas that are known, but there's still a lot that we don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, you know, even with the, 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 the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands spawned, still of the four species we know, Atlantic horseshoe crabs are now vulnerable. The Chinese or Japanese or trispine horseshoe crab is endangered with the increased demand in China and the biomedical industry there and these LALs that we talked about. So there, there is a lot of pressure on them. But one thing that I wanted to highlight this week, and that is the work of uh, the WWF and specifically WWF in Hong Kong. And they have... A, I watched this whole series about them going around to restaurants because they have horseshoe crabs there in Hong Kong on a lot of their beaches and going around to restaurants, talking to uh, these, these owners and saying, you do not want to be serving these uh, as a novelty food. So they're doing a lot of work. Yeah. WWF is amazing. We've, we've highlighted them. We've had some of their scientists on. I always remember Sonarto. I will never forget that interview. Uh, so it's WWF Hong Kong. You can go there, wwf.org, 
www.ethicsmart.hk and go to their website. You can look at what they're doing to protect the horseshoe crab. Obviously, you know, China is massive in protecting them. Japan would be another big player in protecting them. Uh, And hopefully these synthetics can get online so we can protect these animals. Yeah. Yes. And that's the thing is when it comes to to either voting or uh, voting with your dollar or writing letters to your local your local government, uh, this is stuff that can can really like move the needle because for a lot of people they don't necessarily even know that this is an issue or this is something being done. And once again, it is in, it is in the benefit for human medicine and safety. But in the same instances, if we can figure out how to uh, use a synthetic completely replaced using horseshoe crabs in their blood, I think that would really help out their conservation. And yeah, we we, we just need to get those, uh, get those studies done so it can get approved. Yep. Yep. Uh, Amazing species. I'm I'm surprised it didn't go two hours. Thank goodness. (laughs) Some of that quick. Oh, there's so much to cover. There's such an amazing, amazing species. Yeah. And in in the beginning, uh, I didn't get to say thank you to our Patreon subscribers and and all of the kind messages keep them going. I just know Angie and I were excited to get rolling on this one. And, um, you know, look for that interview with Dr. Uh, Nash, Dr. Darren Nash, again, the chief science advisor for uh, Prehistoric Planet on streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. It, it, it's an amazing, amazing uh, series. And during that time when T-Rex was swimming, doing all swimming. these things, mm-hmm. swimming, underneath them were horseshoe crabs. Amazing. Hanging out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just hanging out. That's so awesome. Yeah. Well, yes. Thank you everyone for listening. And if you don't already, please follow us on our social media platforms and also join us on Facebook with our private All Creatures podcast group, where we discuss a lot of these things that we're talking about here on the podcast in a little bit more detail. Uh, Send your emails our way. Chris and I love reading them. I've had several good conversations with people over emails where I'm answering their questions and they're requesting species. And it just helps Chris and I feel connected to you, all of you conservation heroes out there. So keep up the good work and thank you for listening and learning and sharing. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.